morning. Welcome to December. If you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at John 1. And it'll, we'll have it up on the screen later as well. But it's hard to believe it's already December. But for Josiah, it still feels like October in Manitoba, as he's telling us. But for us, this is, this is December. Recently, we turned our clocks back one hour. And apparently, this is the last time we'll be changing the clocks between daylight saving time and standard time. Apparently. One of the immediate effects of the time change is how much earlier it gets dark. I think we all realize that as our light leaves earlier and the darkness lasts longer, some of us sometimes drive to work or school in the dark and drive home in the dark. And it can start to become unnerving. That constant darkness can start to bother you. And in a few weeks, we will come upon the shortest day of the year, December 21st, which is winter solstice. And the sun there on, on the 21st will rise over Greater Vancouver at 8.05, and 8 hours and 11 minutes later, it will disappear over the horizon. At 4.16 p.m., the day will ebb into the longest night of the year, winter solstice. That's for many of us, that's going to seem too early, and the day is going to seem so depressingly short. It's a literally an eight-hour day, essentially. But before electricity, of course, darkness would feel much longer and more dominant. But even with all our street lights and our indoor lights, the dark darkness can still feel oppressive. That's why, for many of us, all of a sudden, you know, driving home in the dark, the appearance of Christmas lights on houses become a bit of a welcoming sight. It adds some light, adds some color. Right, brightening up the streets and our neighborhoods against this black backdrop. And even before the advent of Christianity, many of the winter solstice traditions involve lanterns and candlelights. Right? Light is a, a very much a universal symbol, religiously and culturally, before Christianity. And for us, though, of, in, in, with Christmas, all of a sudden, we have the lights everywhere, and we associate Christmas with a season of light. And in fact, we can't imagine decorating a Christmas tree with, without lights. Right? I mean, it just doesn't seem when we walk in here before the Christmas tree here was lit, it doesn't seem proper. Right? I mean, it's just essential to the Christmas tree. And even though that's a very late tradition, the 17th, 18th century, where the Christmas tree emerges and lights start um, appearing on this tree, it was actually candlelight in the beginning. They actually put candlelight on the tree, and it was just slightly a fire hazard, of course, being light, but they always had a bucket of water or sand nearby. Um, and believe it or not, people were actually initially reluctant to change from candlelights on the tree to electric lights. That just did not seem right to put electric lights on a tree. But today, no one is going back to that tradition, hanging actual candles on the tree. And it tells us sometimes some traditions are worth abandoning, that there's certain progress that seems smart and effective. But today, perhaps now, the debate might be between incandescent lights or LED lights and whatever that might, might mean for many people. But people today are putting up lights, lots of lights, right? BC Hydro estimates that, the, that elaborate light displays have increased the power by about 15% since 2012. So since 2012... 15% increase in power usage, and it's trending upwards. And we see these mega displays in many neighborhoods as all these households compete with who has the greatest light display in these mega displays. And if you've ever seen National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, it was on television on CBC on Friday, you'll recall Clark's ambitious light display. Right? 
How many know what I'm speaking about? Yeah, several do. If you haven't, you can put look it up on YouTube very easily. But there he is about to put up his all his lights, and there's this moment as he says, 250 strands of light, 100 individual bulbs per strand for a grand total of 25,000 imported Italian twinkle lights. 25,000, and he's... And nothing happens as he puts it in. His lights fail to work, at least initially. But BCI Hydro actually put out an interesting report called From Grinch to Griswold. And they estimated that the light, that Clark's light display today would cost over $4,700 during the holidays if he used incandescent lights. But if he used LED lights, it would cost him only $50. Now, I'm not here as a representative of BC Hydro, obviously. <laughs> Nor am I here to give an environmental message about power usage or advocating LED lights over incandescent lights. And for full disclosure, I see a couple of people smirking, though, that they know this. I have actually no Christmas lights on my house. Uh, maybe there is a bit of, of Scrooge in me, but there is that element of Scrooge in the Christmas Carol where Dickens says, darkness was cheap, and Scrooge liked it. Right? <laughs> you know, uh, so there might, but I think ultimately, really, it's more more laziness than cheapness. So if anyone wants to come by and put up some lights in my house, that, that would be fine. But I do enjoy looking across the street at my neighbor's lit houses and seeing the lights shine in the darkness. But I was talking to one of my neighbors the other day. Every year they don't work, and I have to return strands. I'm in there for like half an hour and trying to exchange it. Every year I buy new ones and complaining about failed light. As we enter the Advent season and December 1st today with the four Sundays before Christmas, I want to consider more seriously the imagery and symbolism of light. As I mentioned, light is a universal cultural symbol and a religious symbol as well, and not particular to Christianity, that these winter solstice traditions actually predate the Advent and predate the coming of Christ. But we see this in many cultures, and even in the, in the Old Testament, you see the dualities of light and darkness in, in, in many cultures of the ancient Near East. The prophet Isaiah also speaks of light and darkness, um, and, and some of these other uh, religious groups, Zoroastrianism and others, that there's, there's various worship of sun and moon goddesses, and this competing force between light and darkness. And many speak of this battle between light and darkness and use some of this imagery. But of course, Isaiah, and we read that in the Advent passage this morning that Josiah read, Isaiah believes in the ultimate victory of God and the light of his deliverance. And that, that prophecy we read this morning from Isaiah 9-2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, light has shined. And when Isaiah speaks of the coming Prince of Peace, he speaks of light dispelling darkness. Right? Then this metaphor of light is basic to our understanding of Christmas. Even if we... We don't consciously think about it. It's just something we take for granted, like oxygen. It's just something all around us, this idea of light, and it's in our subconscious if we're not aware of it. And we see it, of course, you know, in the New Testament made explicit in many ways. Luke's gospel, which Steve was working through, we see this longing and yearning for the light, for the dawn to break under Roman oppression and rule and corrupt Jewish leadership. There are these devout and faithful Israelites waiting, longing for the light longing for the Messiah, the hope of a coming light. Uh, Luke highlights, for example, you'll recall Simeon and Anna. Simeon waiting for the redemption of Israel, waiting for the dawn to break. And Zechariah describes the coming of the Messiah, Messiah as in this very same image. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow 
of death. And so here's that idea, and we sang that in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that idea of the divine sunrise giving light to those who sit in darkness. And the old Simeon believes that he has witnessed, right before he's about to die, the dawning of the light. In the sunset of his life, he has seen, he believes, God's promised sunrise. And as he holds the newly circumcised baby Jesus, he blesses God and says, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. But that line, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And for him, this salvation is embodied in this very person and it becomes personalized. And where, we, and where this becomes the most explicit is where John starts in the Gospel of John. So unlike the other Gospels in so many ways, um, he makes this theme the most explicit, and it becomes the most theological and mystical of all the Gospels. It appears at the surface so simple and intimate, and yet, as, as one theologian once said, the Gospel of John is, is shallow enough for a child to wade into and deep enough for an elephant to drown in. Right? And the more you look at John, you sense, sense this depth and richness. As it's the age John reflecting on the meaning and significance of Jesus. And we don't have the usual birth narratives. There are no shepherds. There's no wise men, no manger scenes. There's no baby Jesus, in fact. John begins before Bethlehem. In the beginning, he begins with what he calls the word, the logos. And he connects this word with life and light. So I want to look and read the prologue together. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll read to 18, but I want to primarily focus on verse 5 to 9. But just for the sake of, of, of the whole. And it almost becomes like a prose poem that John begins with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been, has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. We have on our screen, overcome it. I think the NIV has in a footnote in one, but we'll, cut, we'll get to that. Overcome or under, uh, if, if you're reading the Pew Bible, you'll see has not understood it. You'll, note a, you'll notice a footnote, the darkness has not overcome it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. 
as soon as we read these verses in the, in the, in the beginning, that first passage for any Bible reader, and of course John's audience will know this right away, we're reminded of Genesis and the echoes of the creation account where at the first creation, darkness was over the face of the deep. And light and darkness are not merely opposites. Darkness is the absence of light. But also in the Bible, darkness takes on a figurative meaning, not just a, a literal meaning. It can refer to ignorance and blindness, for the lack of guidance. Right? The Jews understood the Gentiles to be without light, without revelation, without God's Torah, without that illumination, so therefore they were in darkness. Right? And hence Isaiah, the people who have dwelled in darkness have seen a great light. They are without, without light, in the spiritual dark. I mean, this is why Simeon, too, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. But in John also, you see that darkness is not just the absence of light. It also can refer to like this positive evil, this moral and actual evil. Right? Something that has like this entity in and of itself. Not merely just ignorance and willful blindness, but a rejection of the light. Right? And he talks about the people loving darkness rather than light. And we see this idea of the rejection of light in this passage. He came in his own and his own did not receive him. They turned their backs on the light. And so with this Genesis backdrop of darkness over the face of the, uh, of the deep, with the language of without form and void, lacking any content and order. It's not until the creative word of God speaks and says, let there be light, that there is light, right? That light in Genesis becomes God's first creative work. And it involves God separating light from darkness. And Genesis tells us that God saw, in an interesting phrase, saw that the light was good, right? So this is actually the first thing described as good in the Bible, and it's interesting the way the text puts it. The text doesn't say God declared the light good. Right? It just declared it, but he saw that the light was good. In and of itself, as a creation of God, it was inherently good. He sees that it was good. It's the first creative good, and it's connected, of course, with the first words, let there be light. And it symbolizes light. It symbolizes, um, Light, light symbolizes life and all these blessings of various sorts. And, all, and, and what's interesting when we read the Genesis account, it's strange because it introduces the sun later as the immediate cause of light, but the order will emphasize God himself as the ultimate source of light. And in the final book of the, of, of the, of the Bible, of course, um, it, 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 it outlasts it. Right? There's this interesting image, image of it outlasting the sun as light. And, and obviously some, there's some deep symbolism there in terms of what is happening, but light and life are clearly interconnected. And John will say that, where we find him saying, in him was life and the life was the light of all people. Right? I believe we, we, we're singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, but you'll hear that line in that later, Hail the newborn prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness, life and light to all he brings. Echoing this, this theme from, from John risen with healings in his, in his wing, light and life to all he brings. In the message, Peterson, interestingly, takes this phrase life, and he says, the life light. Kind of trying to ca kind of encapsulate both these ideas in this translation, the life light. And it's clear that John the Baptist, he says, is not that life light. He came only as a witness to the light. And when the fourth gospel was written, when John's writing this gospel at the end of the first century, we, we, we know of groups and communities that existed that believed John himself, John the baptizer, was the light. That he was the one, that he was the re revealer of God. We have in the book of Acts still disciples of John that haven't heard of Jesus and later in, in the book of Acts. But even as late as the third century, we have evidence of disciples of John still proclaiming John as the Messiah, as light, 
And so there is some kind of tension here as John is bringing that. He bring, John's gospel is bringing that out. He was not the light, right? And for many within ancient Judaism, there was this belief that God had called Israel to be the light to the world, to bring light. I mean, the prophet Isaiah made this clear too, that Israel's calling to be the world's light, a light for the nations. And yet, this is part, part of the issue. Have, have they shone their light have, or, or not? Uh, the, this, this failure. And Israel speak, Isaiah also speaks of the servant of the Lord who is anointed to bring this light, God's salvation to the world, that he becomes the true representative. And I'll read one passage from Isaiah 49, verse 6, where the Lord says to his servant very clearly, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I will make you. And this is speaking to the servant of the Lord, this, in Isaiah, this mysterious figure who represents Israel as a representative of Israel, and yet... There's this message of condemnation, and it climaxes in Isaiah where the suffering servant dies a cruel death and is rejected. Right? And there becomes that climax of Isaiah. And of course, their, 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 their vocation, the servant Lord, to be the light to the nations, that his salvation may reach the ends of the earth for the Gentiles, a light for the Gentiles. And of course, these are the backdrops of some of the things that Simeon and others are speaking of. And... Yet, John goes clearer than just saying the true light is a claim to be Israel's Messiah, because that's part of it. That's how many of the Jews would understand the one, the light, the true light is going to be the Messiah, the messianic figure, the prince of peace, the, 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 the one, that the son of the star that's going to come forward and bring this revelation. That's how they would understand it. But John's prologue goes for, for, farther, explicitly connecting the true light with a divine figure, as divine, as God himself, the embodiment of God, the, the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is where there's this provocative claim to that. Because Jesus was not the only one hailed and claimed to be the light. There's other would-be messiahs and figures that, that in Israel's history as, as well, but in the time of Christ and as well as afterwards. But the most famous would be about well, 100 years after his death, uh, after, uh, after Christ, we have this figure, this messianic claimant called Simeon ben Kosiba, who led this revolution against Rome in 132-135 AD. And the most famous rabbi of the day, Akiba, Akiba claimed him and called him, renamed him Bar Kokhba, which means son of the star. They hailed him son of the star. And he set up an independent Jewish state. He was hailed as prince his followers spoke of him as a great light sent from heaven. They started minting coins with the year one, two, three, that the new age has dawned with Bar Kokhba. He was the son of the star. And of course, he, uh, he, he was essentially crushed by Rome, and that light was extinguished, and Akiba's reputation as a rabbi was somewhat tarnished because of his proclaiming and hailing Bar Kokhba as the son of the star but another would-be failed Messiah figure. And clearly he was not that light. He was not that light. And what's interesting is, again, when the disciples, when Jesus is crucified on the road to Mass, they just thought, we thought he would be the one. Another failed, oh, we, we were so certain, we thought he would be the one who would redeem and deliver Israel, but, but you know, the Rome got him again, crucified, and the Jewish corrupt leadership in the temple, they turned on him, you know, the dejection that rejection of another failed Messiah. And yet, the story, of course, climaxes in the resurrection of, of, of this one. And like 
Bar Kokhba, John the Baptist, was not the true light, but he was not false, right? John is not saying, John's gospel is not saying John the Baptist is, is, a, is a false light. He, I mean, Jesus later in this very gospel calls him in chapter 5 a burning and shining lamp, that John was a burning and a shining lamp. That's how he, how, how he calls him. He's not false. He's just not that, the true light. And we'll talk about that word in, in, in a minute. But even some of us will recall Matthew's gospel, right, where Jesus calls his disciples, the light of the world, you, ye, together, collectively, are the light of the world. It's not in our own light, but collectively, that you're the light of the world that we shine. And there seems to be some sense. It's not like we're like fireflies that glow in our own right. That is some inner illumination, some inner light. Our light comes from an external source. We're reflecting lights. And this is what seems to be the point with John the Baptist, that he is a witness to the true light. And that sense of true is not so much true or genuine as opposed to false. I mean, John just breaks in almost like ignore it, starts with creation, ignores almost the whole historical count as, as he breaks in about the light shining and so forth. But he's not denying that Moses and others brought light in Revelation when he says um, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He's not saying, well, truth didn't come through Moses. He's not denying, you know, you know Moses' authority and the Torah as light in Revelation. But he's using the sense of true in the sense of, he uses an unusual Greek word or a different Greek word, true in the sense of the ultimate light. That he's the true light in the sense that he's ultimate, the ultimate genuine and ultimate self-disclosure of God to human beings. That this light not, not only shined at, into the darkness at creation, but comes into the world, right? The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. It's interesting that phrase, was coming into the world, was coming. And some of us used to the language of the King James, or New King James might, might remember that it speaks of that was the true light which enlightens every man coming to the world. And it kind of sounds that with that translation in that way that, you know, everyone's kind of enlightened as they come and enter the world and receives them this light. Um, but although it's a possible translation, you'll see the NIV will offer it as a footnote, it seems clearer that John is not speaking about every human being, every individual coming into the world, but the fact that the, that the light is coming into the world and brings light as he comes into the world to everyone, that all will receive this light. All people receive light through the words coming into the world for all people, Jew, Gentile, male, female, regardless. Doesn't matter, slave, free, to all. Lightens all people coming into the world. And so here it's a light coming down into the world, then the emphasis of this is the one that brings light. And Christmas becomes a reminder as we reflect on light has come and the darkness has not overcome it. I mean, we saw just on the screen, it had that translation, has not overcome it. If you're looking at your pew Bible, uh, in that version of the NIV, the darkness has not understood it. Or in the King James, the darkness has not comprehended it. Well, which is it? Right? Uh, Various translators translate it differently. In some respects, it's very true in John that the darkness has not comprehended or understood the light. They're baffled by the light. Right? The light is not understood. We see it's not comprehended. It's rejected. Again, and he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. And, but yet, there's also this meaning of this word that, that John uses, kataleban, that can mean either un- overcome or understood, both. And so translators kind of struggle. Which one do we choose? How do we translate it? What do we look at? And John will use that word in a couple different ways, so context becomes determinative, and they can't fully decide on what to do. But 
John is a very subtle, sophisticated writer. It seems simple on the surface, but the more you look at him, the more you see that he's a writer very capable of playing on words and using both senses of full, a full sense. I mean, he talks about, even in this passage, of his fullness we have received, grace upon grace. And he's just he's a- adding this. And so it seems possible to understand both meanings here, that he's deliberately playing on, on, on both. Yes, they've failed to understand the light because they've refused to stand under the light. And they have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They're drawn to that. They reject the light. They turn their backs on the light. And Jesus is rejected by his own people, by the Jewish people. But John extends that not just to his own, but to the world. He uses the phrase, the world, the world, over and over. But the Roman world rejects him as well. Light comes down and shines them. They turn their back, and ultimately they try to kill the light. They try to extinguish the light of the one who makes such provocative and audacious claims. He says things like, in John that infuriate people at the, uh, at the Festival of Lights, where he says, essentially, I am the light of the world. And even that I am, all these provocative ones. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, light and life so interconnected again in that line. And these things absolutely infuriate the opposition. They fail to understand him. They fail to accept him. And they reject him. And yet, ultimately, he cannot be overpowered or overcome. He talks about the Son of Man being lifted up. Of course, the irony in John is that he's lifted up on a cross. And yet, this is also John's language of lifted up in vindication. And I have overcome the world. And so there's all these mysteries and, and, and riddles to John of how this worked, that it can't be overcome or overpowered. And so... Probably the, one, of the, one of the more interesting ways to understand this is the way the NLT translates it. It says, you know, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not extinguished it. Or, or, or one other translation, has not eclipsed it. Which is a really interesting image of what's happened, is, is, that it is not being eclipsed. The light has not been eclipsed. It can never be eclipsed. And in our natural cycles, as we come to, to, to on a day-to-day basis, night and darkness come eventually, right? As we come upon winter solstice. Right? That longest day of darkness, the longest night of darkness, only eight hours of light, it feels as if the darkness has overcome the light, has mastered the light. But what physical darkness does, appears to do, at least, each evening, right? spiritual darkness in the Gospel of John tries to do without success because Jesus overcomes it. His light is shining, is another way of translating, in the darkness and has never been eclipsed. Right? And in our world, of course, we, we see and experience a lot of darkness and, and experience in many forms. And Josiah mentioned that. We can see this, the metaphorical, symbolic meaning of darkness as, as we understand he's going through a very dark period or a dark time with, with either equating with despair, depression, right? The idea of just different evil and horrible malicious things and death itself as the, the valley of the shadow of death, that, that those shadows and those darknesses. And in terms of our experience... Right? In our lives, darkness falls. It blacks out us, our world, in many ways, and there's these many different darknesses that people experience. And for many, I mean, Christmas is not this light, joyful time of the year for so many. It's a very kind of tough and difficult time as people face various darknesses, various griefs, various shadows, right? where it's all not light and cheerful. And for some, it's just a matter of surviving the Christmas season, and there's nothing merry or joyful to that. Right? At some way that they've kind of lost that light of life where it appears. I mean, we see in the Old Testament light just being also a symbol of, of, of joy. And that benediction, may the Lord bless you and keep you, may he cause his face to shine upon you. But there seems to be something that's dimmed that. Right? 
And it's these various darknesses. And we can try to stave off the darkness by all the small means we wish, the equivalent of, metaphorically speaking, all these little Christmas lights, right, and bulbs, 25,000 lights. We can try all these various elements. But for John, ultimately, they're all dim compared to what he calls the true light, the true light, the light that cannot be extinguished or eclipsed, the light that darkness has not overcome, nor ever will, that he, in fact, is the one that has overcome the world. Light came down. And so Christmas becomes that reminder and, and our candles and our various symbolism and imagery that we use and see becomes this reminder of light coming down, right? The word being made flesh and dwelling among us and coming among us. And this morning also we are going to move later into communion. And we're going to reflect on the, this idea of embodiment, enfleshment, that the word actually made flesh. He doesn't, it's not just light as some kind of abstraction, as some kind of candle, but as flesh and blood. And we take the, the symbols of the light coming into the world, the word becoming flesh, bread, and wine, and we partake of that. We participate. We don't just think of light as some kind of abstraction, but something actual and embodied. And it's actually very remarkable, because in many of the, the cultures and religious symbols, it's just, right, and there's various gods and goddesses, but light is often just abstracted. But here, it's like concrete in John. It becomes in, embodied. And this connection of, of, of communicating, and you think of that word, word, the word, as the, as the light came, comes down. And if the climax of Genesis 1 is the creation of human, human beings, the climax of John 1 is the word being made flesh and the word becoming flesh. And the, it, it, we, we continue to celebrate this and, and look at this in many ways. And I thought as, as a way to just help us transition into, into communion and, the, and reflect on the, the first day of December, we could look at this one song together. And it's something we're gonna we're gonna play for you. It's a uh, it's from a, a recent song, right? I mean, some of these songs that we sing in these Christmas carols and these these various hymns. At one point, they were fresh and new. Hark the herald angels, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And these were new songs constantly being made. But this is a recent song written by a singer songwriter from Portland named Josh Garrels, and it's called "The Light Came Down." Um, and it, it's, someone has added some light imagery and some candle Im imagery to it, but I, I want to just use this one just because it's got the lyrics to reflect on. It's very kind of meditative and reflective, and as you kind of see the, the idea of someone musing on the idea of the light coming down, because as we, as we move to communion, I, I hope this music and the lyrics will help move us and minister us, often more than any sermon or message can do, that it put, it kind of put it in that contemplative state. So just hopefully the... Audio work, and um, we'll listen. We'll just listen to that, and we'll, we'll and Harmon will move over into communion. <laughs> 